If you have your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of Luke, and that to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We have in the beginning of this year began an exposition in the Gospel of Luke. And it's been taking us some time, but I promise you we'll get a little bit faster. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe and saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so privileged to be able to come and sit under the preaching of Christ's word. And we ask that by your spirit, he would speak to us today. Give us His Word in which we need to desperately hear. Would we know Him more fully in His life and death and resurrection? Draw us closer and bring us near to Him. And it's in His holy name we pray. Amen. We are brought to another episode of healing in the ministry of Jesus. And our initial observation is that there is a lot going on you'll notice the handful of characters in the story. We see that there are Pharisees and scribes. We also see a group of friends and a man lying on a mat. And then there's the crowd. And of course, there's Jesus in the middle of it all. But along with the characters, notice the different movements taking place here. The religious are off to the side, being critical and judgmental. And then you have Jesus teaching a crowded room of eager listeners. And while all of that is going on inside the house, there are four men digging through the roof outside of the house in order to get their friend down to Jesus. And so there is a lot going on here in this story. But despite all the activity, we must not miss the central point of the narrative. And it's this, that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. That's the message. He is able to change a person's moral standing, remove a person's guilty sentence, and thus transform a person's eternal destiny. In other words, Jesus is able to do what only the holy 
and living God can do. You know, for the past several weeks, we've encountered story after story after story about Jesus' ability to heal. And this story is no different. But if we take a deeper and closer look, Luke has been methodically building upon each and every episode of healing. The casting out of a demon showed us his authority over the devil and over the spiritual forces of evil. The rebuking of a fever disclosed his control over the physical. The catching of the multitude of fish revealed that he has all dominion over all nature. The cleansing of the leper demonstrated that he's able to provide what the law cannot give. Notice these stories have been intentionally strung together. Not, not in random order, but with a purpose. I want you to notice in your Bibles, look at how these stories, look at how these stories begin. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion. Very seems very random. Chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities. Chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days. You see, these stories have been tied together, not necessarily in chronological order, but rather to teach a to reach a theological conclusion, to culminate in this last story of healing. You see, it all culminates here in this story of the paralytic. You see, what Jesus Christ has been doing implicitly in, in the casting of a demon, the rebuking of a fever, the catching of the fish, the cleansing of the leper, He now makes explicit in the healing of the paralytic. What He has been concealing, He now reveals out in the open. And I want you to also notice that with each passing story, I want you to see the increase of the audience. The many at the end of chapter 4, they turned into a pressing crowd in the beginning of chapter 5. Which then turned to great crowds in chapter 5, verse 15. And here in this story, not only is there a crowd, but the religious leaders have now arrived from all over Israel. Verse 17. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Notice, everyone now is there. All these miracles have been building upon one another to bring us to this final crescendo as to who Jesus is and that before everyone. And what is that? We know the answer. Luke chapter 5, verse 24. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, rise, pick up your bed, go home. That Jesus is able to deal with the greatest problem that has plagued mankind from the beginning. The very thing in which under the burning and searching judgment of God sends a man to eternal torment without end. You see, Jesus is able. Well, what is He able to do? He is able to forgive sins. And I wonder, I wonder, church, if we truly realize the gravity of that statement. And the, the issue, truth be told, with my heart and with many of yours, 
is that we do and we don't. We do because as believers we have placed our faith and we place our trust, trust in Christ to do that for us. But we also don't because we're so familiar with it. Jesus in taking our sins is one of the most basic truths, one of the most repeated truths, the truths we've often become dull of hearing. And so when we come to a story that shows us that Jesus is able to forgive sins, it really does not move the needle. It doesn't break us into thankful submission. It's the most elementary thing we know. Jesus is God. Jesus forgives sin. Praise God, let's move on. Tell me something that's more relevant in my life. Give me something that will help me deal with the real issues. Tell me something more beneficial in the here and the now for me. You know, this year, an older friend of mine who's an elder in another church, he, he found out that he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And he's a close friend who has taken care of me. He's one of the godliest men that I know. He loves his family. He loves his church. A man of the Word. A man of prayer. But when he found out that he had cancer, you want to know the, the first thing he did? He began confessing his sins to God. And I thought to myself, why is this man who's faithful, devoted to the Lord, mature spiritually, why is, he, why is he breaking down before God? Of all things, confessing his sin. Why isn't he asking God to, to heal him? Right? The prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5. Why, why his sins? He's a godly man. He's a holy man. And I think because in that moment, he saw something in Jesus. But it wasn't new. There was nothing new that Jesus had revealed to him about himself. There wasn't an unknown attribute that he discovered in Jesus. Well, what changed? Nothing in Jesus. Nothing in Jesus. But rather it was his heart to see him more clearly for who he always has been and is and himself before him. Here was a man of God whom I would say loved the Lord, yet here he was confessing his sins and coming to Jesus as if to be saved all over again. And I had, and I had to ask myself, what prevents me from seeing Jesus for who he really is? I realized for him at that moment, the reason why he fell confessing his sins because that's all that mattered. And I realized as I asked myself, what prevents me from seeing Jesus Christ for who He really is? The answer is me. The answer is me. Me and my sins. It's the fact that we often care on a Sunday more about a football game score or what we need to do to prepare for the upcoming week. And I say that because that's what I often think about on a Sunday. You see, how is it? How is it that we so easily dismiss our Savior? You know, for my friend, nothing else in the universe mattered except for this, that Jesus is able to forgive sins. 
which tells me that all, all I really need is Him and to know that He forgives my sins. Now, that's the kind of perspective we need when we come to this story of the paralytic. And I want you to notice here in this story that there are different perspectives here in this story. And I think Luke wants to show us that, show us that all the different characters here, they are all seeing the same Jesus teaching the same teaching. Watching Him perform the same miracle. Yet produced are such different results. The question that we ought to be asking ourselves, brothers and sisters, this afternoon is how, how am I seeing Jesus? What is it that is preventing me from seeing Him for who He really is? And do I realize what it means that He is able to forgive sins? Well, Luke tells us from verse 17 the context in which this episode took place. That on one of the days, look with me in verse 17, that on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. You see, by this juncture in the ministry of Jesus, he was, he was begin, beginning to become a household name. He was becoming very popular. His popularity had grown from the small town of Capernaum and news about him had spread as far as Jerusalem, which was about a two and a half hour taxi ride. As you know, there were no taxis in the first century, but it ought to tell you just how far the scribes and the Pharisees had to travel to come to Jesus. Well, were they just as eager to meet Jesus as was the case with the crowds? I'm afraid not. They came to evaluate the threat. Jesus was concerning to them. Who is this man speaking on behalf of God? If, if anyone was going to talk about the things of God, it was the Pharisees and it was the scribes. And we'll get more into who these men were throughout the Gospel of Luke. But the Pharisees, they were the spiritually minded Jews of the day. They were the parisa'a in the lingua franca of Israel, the, the separated ones and separated from the rest of the Jewish population whom they believed to be indifferent as to the adherence of the law. They wanted to distinguish themselves as the faithful, apart from the heathen, apart from the uh, compromisers like the tax, collect, tax collectors who, who worked for Rome. And so they thought, the Pharisees thought themselves to be the most serious about God. But we know that throughout the Gospel accounts, that they were Jesus' greatest opposition. And they came along notice with the teachers of the law, or otherwise known as scribes. They were the biblical scholars of Israel. Their main job was to give the correct interpretation and the correct application to the law. And so what you had from every village throughout the whole region, even as far as Jerusalem, were supposedly the most Biblically minded and biblically gifted in all of Israel. The most seriously religious in all the land. Banded together in order to come see this popular preacher by the name of Jesus. But notice, rather than sitting at Jesus' feet, we find them sitting there to scrutinize. Jesus was teaching. Well, what was He teaching? What He had always been teaching. He was teaching 
God's Word. And instead of humbly submitting to that Word, these men came to place themselves over against that Word. To criticize the Word. And by so doing, tragically, they were rejecting the incarnate Word. The Word made flesh. Church. A word of application for us here. Whenever the Word is preached, there are only two kinds of people in the room. Those who come humbly to place themselves under the authority of the Word and those who do not. There are the humble and then there are the critics. Unmoved and unconvinced in their hearts. You see, as for these Pharisees and scribes, we ask, what was the real issue? Because you see, on the outside, they were the religious law keepers, or you might say the guardians of the Word. And so they wanted to make sure that Jesus was aligned with it, right? But it was all a distraction. It was all a ploy, a a deception for what was really going on inside their hearts. Why did they feel so threatened by Jesus? Notice that in such a short amount of time, Jesus, he's, He's becoming super popular. His popularity was growing. Shown by an increase of crowds. And so, again, why were the Pharisees and scribes so critical of Jesus? Here's why. Because they were losing influence. They were losing power. They were losing authority. They were losing status. And that to a mere carpenter from Nazareth and his band of fishermen who seem like they don't really know how to fish. Because every time they go to fish, they don't really catch anything. You see, at the end of the day, these religious men felt Jesus to be a threat, not to the Word, but to their self-pride. Here then is a word, I would say, to our own elders and our own pastors. The yearning for power, for influence, for status, for the praise of the people, or anyone else wanting to go into ministry. It will ruin you. It will ruin us. It will ruin me. But more importantly, it will severely damage God's people. And we know that God paid too high of a price, the price of His Son, to allow us to do such a thing. Now that really applies to each and every one of us in the church, doesn't it? That we ought to humble ourselves. That we ought to lose ourselves. We ought to decrease so that Christ would increase in order that we might gain Christ. You see, in this house are a group of men who are filled with pride and self. Who care not for the people, but only for themselves. Who seek not to know Jesus, but rather to discredit Him. And eventually, they will be responsible for His torture and crucifixion and ultimately His death. And they all had come to a house, according to the Gospel of Mark. They all came to a house in Capernaum. It was, in all probability, the house of Peter. And so, yes, it was Peter's roof that got damaged. And in this house, sitting to the side, were the Pharisees and the scribes. It was a full house. Mark adds that it was so crowded 
there was no room, not even at the door. And so you can just feel the pressure as the atmosphere in this house is, is fully charged. And Luke, he sort of draws us into this house mid-scene with Jesus preaching to those in attendance. And Luke, he, he adds to the growing tension at the end of verse 17 by telling us this, that the power of the Lord, that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. In other words, those who came into this house thinking to be the aggressors, they have no clue what is awaiting them. Jesus is prepared. Jesus is ready. Which means He is fully dependent upon the Spirit. You see, we are no more prepared. We are no more ready for anything in life than when we are reliant upon the Holy Spirit. Well, this entire scene, notice, is interrupted by a group of men. And if you can imagine, all of a sudden in this scene, in the house, debris from the ceiling begins to fall. It begins to rain dirt tiles in this house. And as the people looked up, they saw eight hands desperately breaking up this roof. And I wonder what Peter's reaction must have been. My roof, right? These four men had brought what appears to be a friend. Look at verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Their friend suffered from paralysis. We're not told as to how this man's tragic condition came to be, but it was so severe that he spent his whole life, as told by the Gospel of Matthew, as lying on a bed. And so this man wasn't a paraplegic, but rather a quadriplegic. He was unable to move from the neck down. His body was completely broken. But despite this man being immobile, his faith was very much active and alive. For he was desperate to come to Jesus. And so were his friends on his behalf. They came to the house to where they had heard Jesus was preaching. And immediately they found that they were late. The service had already started. The room was too full. And I imagine that their hearts it would, have, it would have sank, thinking to themselves, we've come to bring our friend to Jesus, but we can't even get in. But notice these men, they were undeterred. They refused to be denied. Verse 19, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. You see, Peter's house, like the other houses, had a flat tiled roof in which the family would use as additional space. We don't really use our roofs as additional space. But here, in the context of Israel, the roof was sort of like a family room. And access to this roof was found on the side of the house by a staircase. And it appears that the men carried that stretcher up the stairs and to the roof. And without shame and without hesitation, they began breaking apart that roof with their hands in an attempt to hoist down their needy friend. And again, in the first century, to just go to someone's house and to just start breaking the roof, that you just don't do that. That's not a special custom that people did. But I want you to notice here what great lengths these men went to get their friend to Jesus. And you see, friends such as these are one of the best gifts from the Lord. 
They'll do anything, not just for you. They'll do anything, not just for you, but to get you to Jesus. And there's a huge difference. It's because sometimes you may not want it, right? It, it'll be kind of painful. But you never, church, want to leave the company of brothers and sisters who are determined to bring you to Christ. Whether it's by word, whether it's by deed. You know, we can also ask this about ourselves. How willing are we, we, to draw people to Jesus? To what lengths will we go to bring people to Him? That we would lose our reputation, lose respect, lose dignity. Is there someone in your life that you're wanting to minister to, that, that, you're, that you're tempted to give up on because you're saying to yourself, I'm so frustrated. It's never going to happen. This person's never going to see it. And what about this man lying on a mat? Think about his point of view. I mean, what was going on through his mind as he was bumped along the stretcher? And all he can do is look up. To have been denied entry. Only then to be carried up the stairs. And then to be lowered down by a rope. His eyes only able to look up. And then finally, after all, just seeing different things, finally to, to be able to see the face of Jesus. And now all eyes were on this man in that crowded room as he lay before Jesus. And it's here in our outline that the context now turns to the claim. Verse 20, And when he saw their faith, notice it's not just his, but it's the friends as well. He said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Wait, what did he say? There would have been a ripple effect in the crowd. Did he just say that his sins are forgiven? With everyone watching, waiting for Jesus to heal. It's because that's all, that's, that, that's what, what everyone was expecting, to heal this man, to mend his body, to do that which had gained Jesus, recognition, over all of Israel. Here was a paralytic, unable to move, lying helpless, motionless, in front of Jesus. And from every eye in that room, what this man needed was to be healed. But Jesus, rather than saying, be healed, He says, your sins are forgiven. From any outside observer, they would have thought, do you realize what this man needs? And Jesus' answer was yes. I know what this man needs. I know this man's deepest need. You see, what came out of the Lord's mouth were the most personal words He could have ever said. He was speaking right into this man's soul. Looking at the paralytic, He said, I can deal with your sins. And no one else here was in view. And Jesus is looking at this paralytic. I know what truly troubles you. Your sins are forgiven. It was shocking. Lest we cast any doubt on Jesus' compassion here. It was ever and overflowing with streams of abundant mercy. You see, he went right into this man's greatest need. Not the healing of his body, 
but rather the salvation of his soul. The forgiveness of his sins. And you see Jesus in the middle of that room before all who were watching prioritized what was of dire importance. The pardon of his sins. Which is why when my friend found out about his cancer in that moment, he understood what needed to be addressed. There was a priority in his life. Nothing else had mattered. And his deepest and his greatest need was met by Jesus. And you see, what we need to know, church, here about the forgiveness of sins is that the forgiveness of sins, it never stands alone. It is a pardon plus. What do I mean? Not only is a sinner forgiven of their sins, debt canceled, sins paid, justified before God, but then there is, there is His love. The forgiveness of sins comes with it. His love. God not only dispels the guilt, but comes with an embrace. How do I know that? Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The forgiveness of sins never comes alone. Dear friend, what about you? Have you found the remedy to your soul? Search no more. He is Jesus. You see, we, we are broken as a people. Not in a paralysis of body, but we have a paralysis of heart. Sin has taken hold of us through and through. It binds us. It imprisons us. It demands our lives. And you see, all these healings in the Gospel of Luke have been leading us to this moment right here to the paralytic. Just as he was unable to help, him, help himself, so too are we helpless. But see the Savior. All you have to do is see the Savior. This story shows us who Jesus truly is. The story, this story here, takes us into the very epicenter of the Gospel. And that Jesus Christ came to us to make sinners such as ourselves right with the holy and living God. It is a gift that lasts for all of eternity. And what Jesus said to the paralytic, He says to anyone who comes to Him by faith, that your sins are forgiven. If we come looking to Jesus, if we come trusting in His sinless and spotless life, if we come looking to His death upon the cross upon which our sins were paid, if we come trusting in that He rose from the grave and ever lives to give us eternal life, have your sins been forgiven? Whether you've been coming to this church for just a few weeks or more than a few years, has the Lord Jesus taken away your sins? You see, it's the most important question you'll ever have to answer in your life. And it's that answer that will dictate your standing for all of eternity. Here was a man not even able to stand, yet possessed the far greater gift, a right standing with God. You see, what could possibly be more important in this life and the life to come? 
listen, listen to the comments of uh, Anglican reformer J.C. Ryle from the 20th century. And listen to this, the comments that he makes about this story about the paralytic. Why is it that so many people take no pains in religion? How is it that they can never find time for praying, reading the Bible, and hearing the Gospel? What is the secret of their continual strong of excuses, string of excuses for neglecting means of grace? How is it that the very same men who are full of zeal about money, business, pleasure, or politics will take no trouble about their souls? The answer to these questions is short and simple. These men are not in earnest about salvation. They have no sense of their spiritual disease. They have no consciousness of requiring a spiritual physician. They do not feel that their souls are in danger of dying eternally. They see no use in taking trouble about religion. In darkness like this, thousands live and die. But happy indeed are they who have found out their peril and count all things loss if they may only win Christ and be found in Him. End quote. Simply put, church, have you been neglecting the greatest need for your soul? Have you been neglecting the greatest need for your soul? I want you to notice the response of those who didn't care for it. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Instead of being amazed at the gracious work of Christ, rather than rejoicing, over the saved soul who was lost, they began to criticize. Now there's something here that we cannot miss. These scribes and these Pharisees, they were not wrong. They were speaking better than they knew. And that they said, what they said, it was right, in a sense. You see, sin is before all else an offense against a holy and righteous God and only God can forgive a sinner. Their theology was sound. You see, only God possesses the authority to forgive sins. But what we find here is this. That a person can have the right theology, yet at the same time, not be right with God. You can't have faith without right theology. But you can have right theology and have no faith. And you see, despite having right theology, what did they fail to recognize? That the one who had forgiven the sins of this paralytic, he was himself God. God the eternal Son. What they failed to consider was the fact that this preacher was God. They should have been questioning, could he be the one? Is he the Messiah, the Savior for whom we've been eager, eagerly waiting for? I mean, these were the religious men of Israel. They knew God's Word. But at the same time, you can know God's Word and be so blind to it. It's because their souls were hardened. Their hearts corrupt. Never once did they think Jesus was God in flesh. Never did they consider that He was Israel's Savior. And we find here then that being religious doesn't really account for anything. A person can play religion even in the best of churches, and yet have no part in Christ. 
And so these men put the charge against Jesus. They said he's a blasphemer. They turned to the law in Leviticus 24, which says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. They were in essence uh, placing a death sentence on Jesus. And so more than having no part in Christ, you can be religious and you can have a murderous heart against him. But you see this. Calling Jesus a blasphemer is the worst blasphemy a person could say. And you know, it would have been lawful for Jesus, the Son of God, to obliterate in that moment these religious men for committing the highest treason against God. And I want you to notice something about the Lord Jesus here. He's so gracious. Because I want you to notice that He extends an opportunity for them to come to Him in repentance. He gives them reason as to why they should trust in Him. Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise, and walk. You see what Jesus is doing? He's trying to draw them in. Jesus' words were simple yet profound. You see, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. It was easier to speak forgiveness than to command a paralyzed man with words to stand and walk. Well, how so? Empirical evidence. There was no way a person could prove the former. You see, forgiveness took place in the invisible realm, the spiritual realm, hidden from our view. But to the watching eye, to tell the paralytic to rise and to walk, the burden of, the burden of proof was immediate. It was clear. And if that man was to remain in his broken condition, on his mat, motionless, Jesus would have been shown to be a fraud in front of everybody. And so in a sense... It was easier to say, your sins are forgiven. However, for Jesus to say, rise and walk, was also not a difficult thing. And you see, from the perspective of the cross, forgiving sins, it was really the hardest thing. Well, how so? It's because it was costly. It was the price of His very life. In order to offer forgiveness, the Son had to humble Himself, come down to us, draped in our flesh, suffer the shame, die in the bloody agony of the cross. In this story, the harder thing, from their perspective, was to say, rise and walk. But in the greater story, the harder thing, was to bear His Father's wrath and to die upon the cross. Verse 24 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. And they were all filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today.
in that moment, Jesus showed that the Son of Man was the Son of God. And we're told here in chapter 5, verse 17, if you look back, that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. Well, it was the power to heal more than the paralysis of His body, but to heal the paralysis of this man's heart. This man who came in through the roof, a condemned and dying sinner, left through the front door, forgiven and redeemed. This is the power of Jesus to forgive the sinner. Well, how do we respond? I asked in the beginning of the sermon, how are you seeing Jesus? Do you grasp the eternal weight of knowing what it means to be forgiven of your sins? Well, Christian, if you're a Christian, can I encourage you? What the Son of God did for this man, He has done for you. That He has met your deepest and your greatest need. There is nothing that you truly need if this need has been met. And you need to believe that. Which is why whether we face trial or pain or death or depression, or whatever it might be, we have been given the remedy. The Lord Jesus has saved us in like manner as we've seen today. And so what are we to do? If such is true, then pick up your mat, go home, and glorify God. Glorify God. Praise God and let that be your perpetual response. A life of praise. A life of thanksgiving. A life of glory to God. Let's pray together. God of mercy and God of grace, what mercies You have lavished upon us, poor and needy sinners. And we thank You for meeting our deepest and greatest need, for forgiving us of our sins, for dealing with the paralysis of our hearts and our souls. And we confess that we have not prioritized what are the weightier matters of our lives, that we have lived unspiritually with little to no conviction. And thus, our lives have no power the Gospel of Christ is so weak and dim. Lord, we repent and we look to You. And we turn to You. And we ask that You would grant to us more faith, a desire and a want to see Jesus in all that we do in order that we might give You the glory. Lord, would You do that in us? In the name of Christ, who has washed our sins away, we pray. Amen.